Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are live from the International Church of Cannabis in Denver on 420. I got to tell you, in the interest of full disclosure, I've never been to Denver before. I've never consumed, smelled, snorted, injected the wacky tobacco. But right now, and you don't quite appreciate this listening to it on radio, I'm in the midst of unprecedented secondhand cannabis smoke. And um, you want my first impressions? Yeah, I'm, I'm hungry. Uh, uh, I like to have a Pizza Hut pizza, supreme, like I, I said before. But before we get to any of that, I do need to tell you by way of full disclosure that this special episode of Full Disclosure is made possible by the support of Vicente Setterberg, called the country's first powerhouse marijuana law firm by Rolling Stone magazine. Find them at themarijuanalawfirm.com. And the second disclosure is the guy sitting to my right, Steve Burke, is my little cousin. And that's my entree into this story. I grew up with Steve, my closest cousin in Miami, had no idea that this would be his manifest destiny by the time he was in his mid-30s. And when I found out he was opening up an international church of cannabis, I had to tag along. I heard all these things about the marijuana business, about Colorado's unbelievable experiment. And so I must ask you, sir, because I always thought you were the goody two-shoes tennis player, when did you try your first hit of marijuana? Uh, well, thanks, Robin. Thanks for that brilliant intro. I actually, uh, and Robin knows this, my first uh, stage of my life, I was a tennis player. And I, I could probably consider myself a professional tennis player from the age of 14. Uh, when I was 14, I was the number one junior tennis player in the country. Uh, I was on the national junior team with people like Andy Roddick and Taylor Dent and Marty Fish. And I played Roger Federer and David Nalbandian. And, you know, tennis was the first love of my life. And because of that, I never even thought about cannabis or marijuana. In fact, I was very much brainwashed by the D.A.R.E. program growing up through uh, the Miami-Dade County public school system. And so I, uh, I never really thought about cannabis until... Uh, the end of my tennis career, which happened by accident, when I herniated two discs in my lower back in a professional tennis tournament in a small town in Mexico. And I was uh, on my way to rehabbing my injury when I got an opportunity to be on an entrepreneurial television show on Fox with Sir Richard Branson. And I got an opportunity to be on that show and I traveled the world with Richard Branson for two full months. And towards the end of the taping of that show, we were having a cast party on his private island in the Caribbean, Necker Island. Um, and Richard was in a great mood and lit up a spliff and handed it to me. And that was the first time in my life that, you know, somebody who I looked up to, who I revered, who was my entrepreneurial hero, uh, became a cannabis user. And I completely looked at the world differently. He, he kind of broke the taboo uh, in my head of what it was like to be a stoner. And if Richard Branson can run a global corporation that's worth billions of dollars and be a successful entrepreneur and still smoke weed, maybe it wasn't as bad as what the D.A.R.E. program taught me at Highland Oaks Middle School. 
So uh, that was the first time I, I kind of experimented, and uh, I didn't really start using cannabis regularly until I was about 25 years old, when I was still struggling with my injury. I couldn't sleep through the night, and uh, that's when I tried medical marijuana, and it relieved my, my, my pain. It allowed me to regain the quality of my life, and I went from somebody who looked down at people who smoked weed to somebody who was a regular medical marijuana user. And that's kind of how I started my foray into marijuana activism on YouTube. And so I went from someone uh, who really didn't, didn't know anything about the plant uh, to starting to question the government, starting to question why this, this plant that helped me recover you know, you have to understand, during my injury, I, I had epidural injections, I had facet injections, I had cortisone injected directly into my spine. Uh, I was in big trouble. And yet, there was this other alternative treatment that wasn't considered a legitimate medicine. You know, coming from, a, you know, my parents, they're both physicians, and neither of them knew much about cannabis. So I had to kind of uh, go down this journey alone. My parents did not know that I was using medical marijuana at the time. Uh, my parents are very conservative. And they are here today, so they're supportive now. Thank you, Mom. Thank you, Dad. Um, but yeah, so you know, that's kind of how it happened. And uh, I started becoming an activist. I started campaigning in, in Miami Beach to decriminalize marijuana. And uh, that's how I met the gentleman sitting next to me. Let's get Lee into this conversation. Lee right. Malloy, how did you two cross paths? Was it in Miami Beach? How long? When did you try your first joint? Give us the background. Give us the upload. Um, yeah, we, we, we uh, met when Steve uh, decided he was going to run for mayor of Miami Beach. Um, and uh, I, I think I did an interview with you. That's yeah, right. Lee, Lee actually reached out to me as a journalist. He ran an independent newspaper yeah. in, in Miami. And I had a video called Should Be Legalized, which was an Eminem Rihanna parody where I talked about the legalization, or I sang about, or I rapped about the legalization of marijuana. And that was my first viral video on YouTube back in uh, 2010, when viral videos were a lot harder to come by. Well, let's, let's leave. Let's call bullshit if we have to. A lot of us go to college that first semester. You might meet somebody at prep school at Andover, Exeter, whatever, who's been smoking pot for five, six years. You try your first joint, and then, you know, it's almost archetypal. You meet that dude who becomes a marijuana activist. He starts talking about the quasi-medicinal properties of it, and then it attains some sort of official stature, even though it's all about feeling good, it's all about getting high. Do you really buy the medicinal you know, quasi-pharmaceutical properties of, of marijuana? A absolutely, because I've met people that have, um, you know, they've been in pain and have had their pain relieved. Um, and I've also, uh, you know, uh, I, I know it's very good for people with glaucoma, I know that's definitely been looked at, and also for kids with epilepsy can uh, be uh, helped by uh, uh, medical marijuana. Uh, my, my, myself, I am actually a, uh, uh, I have a, uh, seizures, I have a seizure disorder, um, and it doesn't help me, but it does help other people, and you know, good for them, and they should have access to that, because having seizures are no fun. So what I don't understand is this, this herb is ancient, it's been around, and you know the history of pharmaceuticals, I mean, cocaine was prescribed, there were uh, morphine drops for kids, you can go back on Throwback Thursdays on Twitter and see the things that were legit, you know, 110 years ago, how there was cocaine in Coca-Cola, how uh, opium extract was, was universally available. Uh, you could get it from your apothecary. How then did this 
did this weed become so radioactive, something that the Justice Department put in its crosshairs? If it has irrefutable psychopharmaceutical pluses, how could they oppress it and repress it for so long? Uh, because, uh, I, I mean, I can only guess and hazard a guess that because the pharmaceutical companies know that if people are able to access a plant that they can grow themselves, they're probably not going to need to have very expensive health insurance to pay for the very expensive drugs that they need. And you really buy that, Steve? Yeah, I do buy that. Actually, if you look at the history of the criminalization of marijuana, racism played a big part in it. And, and, right. and it was used in propaganda films like Reefer Madness. And, you know, people were told that... Uh, that white women become attracted to black men when they smoke marijuana, and, and, and it was really used as a device. Uh, no woman has ever become attracted to me smoking marijuana, I can tell you that from <laughs> college experience. Huh? So, <laughs> anyway, so, so yeah, I, I mean, listen, there's, uh, it, it really comes down to whether or not you believe government is always looking out for the best interests of its people. And if you look at the nature of human beings, it's just simply not the case when you look at history over the past several thousand years. Uh, human beings just generally aren't very good to each other. They kill, they fight, they rape, they pillage. There's wars being fought today. So if you believe that government organizations are always acting in the best interests of its people, then you're an optimist. And I've come to the conclusion over the past 10 years that I've started to experiment with this plant that there's a lot of financial interests that benefit from the criminalization of this plant, from pharmaceutical companies to alcohol companies to the private prison industry to tobacco. Even if you look at the Colorado experiment, if you look at the past several years of alcohol use in this state, it has gone down as marijuana use has gone up. And the alcohol industry is a very big lobby. Incidentally, I did some research. You know, this is a business show. I come from a financial industry background. I'm a, a, an active investor on the side. I follow the markets. Uh, one thing that I really couldn't believe, and it's one of the stats that blows my mind, year after year, Credit Suisse put out a, uh, uh, an investing almanac. I think it was a couple Januarys ago. Does anybody in the crowd know what the best performing asset of the stock market, the best performing industry has been over a hundred year period? Tobacco, cigarette stock. Um, something that has time and again been proven to cause cancer. When used as directed, it will significantly skew your, your risk of getting all sorts of ailments from heart disease to lung cancers to emphysema. And that is a hugely moneyed industry. To the extent that this one, the biggest tobacco company in the US, I believe, you can look up the stat, a dollar invested in 1900 by 2015 or 2014 would have been worth something like $6 million or so. It was really an unbelievable statistic. And then you get an unbelievable lobbying strength in that. Um, there are states where the tobacco tax is very low, where uh, tobacco advertising, even before the grand settlement in 1998, uh, is, is very lax. You can appeal to kids in, in other ways. I think nothing kind of suggests the duplicity of that. And then you bring in recently, Steve, you and I spoke about this offline, the opioid ep epidemic in the United States. That suggests how entrenched big pharma and the pharmaceutical industry is. I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Something that is very legal and very uh, omnipresent and easily acquired. It's in drugstores up until recently. CVS, I think, is the only one to boot it out versus something that has been demonstrated to not kill people in, in the, the weed that you guys worship. Yeah, I think, um, I think it's just another example of how capitalism can rear its ugly head 
Uh, you know, if you look at tobacco, you know, we had to pass laws so that they would stop marketing to children. And they do that in America, but they don't do that in the rest of the world. You know, all the, Philip Morris is act, has cigarette stands in third world developing countries right outside elementary schools, right outside of middle schools. They don't care about the best interests of fellow human beings. They care about their bottom line. Though we said that is that there have been articles before that the instant that you see a possibility of this getting national legalization marijuana, Philip Morris would be a company that would pounce on that. Me? Jump in, either of you. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, I was, no, because I was we, yeah, there's, that, there's a lot the of rumors. Side. There's a lot of yeah. rumors that Philip Morris would, you know, they have the capital, they have the resources to uh, to acquire any marijuana company quite easily, right? And if you look at how big the marijuana industry, it's a drop in the bucket. There, you know, people think that you know marijuana is a multi-billion-dollar uh, uh, industry and that it's going to be able to take on these other lobbies. And the truth is, is that fractionally it's microscopic compared to these other four industries. And there's no chance that the marijuana lobby can compete with any of those other four industries. So the, the, in my opinion, the reason why we're seeing marijuana legalization becoming more progressive, passing state by state, it's because it's becoming so toxic as a politician to oppose it because public opinion has shifted in the past 20 years to the point where you can't get elected in Colorado if you're anti-marijuana. And, and that's the fear. So a politician will always do what's best for his own campaign and to get reelected. And I think we've seen that time and time again. So, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, we have uh, tobacco lobbies who are playing both sides right now. They're actively donating to the PACs, super PACs and ECOs, politicians who are anti-marijuana. And yet they're waiting in the shadows because if this does go full, full legal, I think they're gonna pounce and make this a very serious business opportunity for themselves and just acquire all the and to give companies. And to give you some background on that that I've been doing in my reporting is that the advent of vaping, the huge explosion of this industry, which is by no means controlled by the big incumbent tobacco companies uh, and is a threat to them. You could almost look at it as digital versus analog, right? Digital disrupting another industry. Um, as you see more and more people jury rigging their vaping apparatus to use cannabis oil or hemp extracts or things that are very small market and still black market as you go up and down the East Coast. And you know, you, I, many of my friends, you visit them or, or somebody had a, I've seen people use it who've had panic attacks who need cannabis oil. Who, there, there's no one to stop you from getting a private label uh, refill, vaping you know, fluid refill, whether it's nicotine based or whether it's cannabis based. And I think this is going to, to point to kind of the crux of the episode that I'm getting into here is that there is a nascent, incipient, enormous, potentially, financial opportunity in marijuana, but there's a lot of peril as well. We know that this is a cash-dominant industry. The credit card companies can't transact, help you transact commerce. We know that there are a lot of vagaries with interstate commerce. We know that uh, you need armed gu armored guards and uh, it's not, you know, you can't take PayPal. And so there are enormous barriers to this kind of exiting the Rocky Mountain region, especially now that you have a new administration with a more puritanical AG. So, so those are some of the things we want to hit on in this very eclectic episode, and we're gonna interview many of you out there. Um, I'm gonna let you close it out, Steve. Tell us what plans you have, who's been getting in touch. Uh, you said you haven't slept for the past 48 hours or so. Uh, and, and why a church? Well, let's, let's a little, you know, describe a little bit about this venue and, and 
who it houses. It houses a congregation of elevationists. And elevationists are uh, people who believe that one's individual search for meaning and spirituality is, is a personal journey that can be heightened and deepened with ritual cannabis use. And so, you know, this is a new home for people who use cannabis for spiritual or religious purposes, for them to feel safe from persecution, from law enforcement, for them to come here. We welcome people of all faiths. There is no sort of uh, singular dogma that we preach to you. Do you administer communion here? Well, we have a 420 ceremony that we practice at 420 p.m., and we're going to be practicing that today. Can you offer ritual circumcisions? <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to hand me the scissors in that scenario. Can you get a license to marry a couple in the state of Colorado? As far as I know, you do not need a license to marry a couple in the state of Colorado, and we will be having uh, weddings here, and this will be the first chapel in the world where you can get married and smoke a joint in the same sanctuary. And final question is, do you guys, have you appropriated titles yet? Is there deacon, reverend, friar, no, grand poobah, spiritual leader? No, I mean, we're all high priests, but other than that, um, no, we, ha we have a non-authoritarian structure. We have no hierarchy. Uh, we don't claim to know the mind of God, and I'm not going to pretend to be able to tell you guys what he thinks. Uh, so we, we are basically all elevationists, and we're all equal in this space. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are at the International Church of Cannabis. Hashtag ICOC Denver. Stay with us. I'm Steve Burke, and I am an elevationist and the media relations director for the International Church of Cannabis. As you stand on Logan Street facing the front of the church, we have a massive 60-foot bell tower on your left. And then in the middle, you have these three beautifully painted doors by L.A. street artist Kenny Scharf. And if you look up, you'll see a giant 60-foot mural by Kenny Scharf, which is full of cosmic planets and characters, and it's really trippy. And above that, currently, we have a big cross, which we're not quite sure what to do with yet because we're not a Christian church, and we do want to remove it, but we don't want to offend Christians because we do have a lot of Christians that belong to our church. So we're going to be reaching out to the community to figure out what's the most respectful way to either cover or remove the cross. So you see this big giant mural and then above it you see a cross and then uh, to the right of that is another brick tower. The entire facade of the front of the building is brick and you walk through these cosmic Kenny Scharf doors into our lobby. And our lobby is, it has purple carpet and a purple wall and it says the International Church of Cannabis written out in recycled artificial grass. And that's where you check in, you give the, the person at the front desk your ID because you do have to be 21 and over to enter the church. And as you show your ID and you get it scanned, you go towards the right where you go up a staircase. And as you enter the wooden doors at the top of the staircase, that's the first time that you get accosted with Okuda San Miguel's colors. 
and the chapel inside our sanctuary was painted by Madrid artist Okuda San Miguel, who, for those of you who aren't familiar, is a modern street artist master of color. I actually still have the videos on my phone of my initial tour with this place, and I thought it was a shithole. Can I say shithole? Am I allowed to say that on NPR One? Um, I, I was really in bad shape, and I really thought I was wasting my time walking through it because I was like, this needs so much money and work, and I just can't see how this is uh, a good investment with the amount of work that this place needs. So I wasn't at all thinking, oh my God, this is perfect for the International Church of Cannabis. That, that idea was not even born yet. Uh, it was really a real estate tour and coming from a, a family that's been involved in real estate for nearly 80 years, I was looking at it strictly as an entrepreneur and as a real estate investment and did not think that we would be purchasing this property. It shifted because for those who know in the real estate world, we were doing a 1031 exchange and we needed to name three properties uh, that we were potentially going to buy after we sold the property. And the other two deals fell through. So it really came down to buy this property or give the government a lot of money in taxes for capital gains. And we didn't want to do that. Sponsor of Full Disclosure is the Vicente Setterberg Law Firm, which is based right here in Denver with additional offices around the country. Their attorneys not only represent clients in the cannabis industry, but have also helped shape the laws and regulations that govern the industry. Find them at themarijuanalawfirm.com. Full Disclosure, we are on stage at the International Church of Cannabis, hashtag ICOC in Denver, approximately 21 minutes to 420, April 20th. Ground Zero, the International Church of Cannabis, you could smell the smoke wafting. Joining me on stage now is Tom Siciliano, president of CSA, Canna Security. Did I get that right? You got that right, bud. Now, this is a very important aspect of this broad conversation. I mean, a big reason why full disclosure came to the International Church of Cannabis on 420 to begin with. This is a really peculiar industry. It's not like anybody can just take credit card payments or PayPal. Um, you are an island of, of cannabis freedom here that has to deal with cash, decidedly. I mean, armored truck companies are in clover. Um, security is of the essence because, after all, if a lot of marijuana is sold from a dispensary, it can be taken over state borders and <laughs> marked up significantly. Criminal elements can get involved, and that's where your company comes in. Absolutely. Yeah, we, what we've uh, done is really helped not only protect the user, uh, but also the, the business owner. So the business owner right now, on, on average, about 10% is leakage or stolen out of the locations. So whether it's a grow, whether it's a manufacturer or MIP, or it's a dispensary, oftentimes they have problems there. So our camera systems help them to kind of regulate, if they will. Uh, it also helps the, the, you know, the user, meaning that uh, when they're walking in, they can feel safe that nobody's gonna come in. 
uh, our guards are on site here today at the church just to kind of help keep order and make sure everybody's you know comfortable doing their thing and that no uh, no thing no things get out of line but in addition to that to your point it's the cash movement that's key so our company we provide security for cameras and surveillance systems that go with that but we also provide guard services like I mentioned but the transportation piece where we can help people get their cash into their bank so very few companies can do what we do, which is to deliver to the Federal Reserve, which really helps them get their cash into the bank so they can then pay payroll. How does that work? Do you need to have it like an FDIC insurance stature? I mean, It's very difficult to do that. So what happens right now, there's only a few banks in Colorado right now. There's four banks in Colorado <clears throat> that are able to really deposit cash um, or take cash from cannabis companies. One of the companies that we work with, Safe Harbor, is one of the largest in uh, in Colorado and really across the country. And so what you need to have is you need to have a vault. Uh, so our company now has a vault, and one of the largest vaults in Denver. But you also have to be approved by the bank. And so the bank has to regulate you. So you don't go to the Federal Reserve and say, I want to deliver cash to you. You need a bank to sponsor you. So we now service all the customers for Safe Harbor and other banks. What happened to the legacy players? I mean, to the extent that we have to go almost back to the future, back to the Wells Fargo truck, the Loomis Fargo truck, the Brinks truck, the era of armed robberies. I mean, I, I got to tell you, Tom, I cannot stand cash. Uh, I like to use my Apple Pay wherever they accept it, be it Whole Foods. I'm annoyed that CVS doesn't carry it. You see a lot of millennials, especially they keep their credit cards clipped on the back of their smartphones. Cash is retrograde. I mean, out of necessity, you guys have to use it here because this state is at the vanguard of marijuana commerce. But why isn't a bank, a Denver or a Colorado, you know, founded bank pouncing on this opportunity? Well, it's really not in their play. Uh, the play really comes, I think, uh, schedule uh, cannabis is right now schedule one. So that is one of the key things right now. So federally regulated, so every bank has got their federally regulated coverage. Until that gets lifted, the banks aren't going to be able to do that across the board, or they're not going to choose to because the regulations are so difficult. But, now, but, but, but wait, hold up. You get, to take, you get to beeline this cash to the Federal Reserve? Correct. So it, it's, it's like a strange ecosystem outside of where well, the banks so, occupy. Yeah, but keep, you know, keep, the, keep it in mind. So what happens right now is we'll go to a location, we'll pick up their cash. But that company that we picked up their cash, they have to have an account with a bank already that would accept the cash. So there, there are only four uh, company or four banks right now in Colorado that do that. Uh, let me understand this, um, and uh, you know, I don't want you to cut down on your business prospects by talking about it, but just to illustrate mm -hmm. for people the pratfalls of opening up a marijuana business, even in this perceived, you know, Colorado gold rush, mm -hmm. what is lost in terms of transaction friction costs? from this, the fact that it has to be cash intensive, the fact that a business has to employ potentially armed guards or invest money in uh, uh, loss mitigation or security cameras. What is it kind of back of your mind? If I'm starting up a business, I need to know my rent, my overhead, my labor, but there seems to be this other nut of kind of security and cash involved. Well, let's keep in mind, this is a cash business, so when you got that, you certainly want to protect your entity. but. Uh, to get a license in really any state, and we've serviced 14 states across the United States right now, in any state that you want to get a license, you have to have a whole host of a business plan that's going to include a security plan. Because since that's cash involved, the states want you to make sure that you have all aspects covered. 
So to get your license, you have to have a security plan. That's where we help companies across the U.S. So until we get a different uh, parameter that you could use, whether it's a bit chip or some kind of a, uh, a card that you can use in a, in dispensary where you can actually uh, put your card in and get another card out and then take that to the counter. Until all that's regulated right now, we are where we are with the cash piece. But our play here is to make sure that we keep everybody safe. We want to make sure that you can get your license, but once you do get your license, you got to keep your place safe. People are people, and we don't want people breaking into your place. A grow has, uh, a grow typically when they start, it takes about three germinations to get them to get a plant that really will grow. It takes about three months for each germination. So you get nine months of expense. So by the time you get done buying your lights, get all your licensing, buy all your soil, buy all your seed, start growing your nine months before you start getting cash in, that's a lot of cash to spend before you start making any money. Finally, Tom Siciliano, I do want to sound thoroughly modern, even though I don't really know what Bitcoin or the blockchain is. How is that going to affect this? Well, I think at some point in time, uh, again, I think this is going to uh, change potentially if uh, we come, or when, I should say, uh, when we go from Schedule 1 off. Uh, right now, we need the banks to allow us to do that. Once that happens, then that changes the whole dynamic right now. But the cash piece has to be regulated differently than using a credit card or using some other type of fashion of currency that's available. You know, I just had a flash of brilliance while Tom was sharing all these valuable nuggets with us. Oh, get it, Denver Nuggets. <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Uh, oh, boy. A great business name if you guys want to create a competitor to Canada Security, CSA is Cash Me Outside. How about that? Oh, oh I digress. Keep your day job. I will. Tom Siciliano of CSA, thank you so much. Thanks. Full disclosure, stay with us. Today's sponsor of Full Disclosure is the Vicente Setterberg Law Firm, which is based right here in Denver with additional offices around the country. Their attorneys not only represent clients in the cannabis industry, but have also helped shape the laws and regulations that govern the industry. Find them at themarijuanalawfirm.com. And joining me on stage right now uh, from the Colorado Cannabis Company, CEO and COO, together we have Frank Quattrone and Ethan Borg. How are you, gentlemen? Great, thank Great. you. Thanks and a, uh, another brand that you're seeing both here and, and locally is uh, Pure, the marijuana dispensary of which uh, Ethan and Frank uh, run as well. Um, Frank, I do want to ask you the same question across the board that we asked everybody else. And ditto Ethan, when was your first time? Was there an aha moment? Did you have an epiphany? Did you ever imagine that you would become a marijuana thought leader? No, I did not. Actually, I was... Uh believe somewhere in the age of 16, 17, uh, on the East Coast. And uh, nothing really spectacular, just a bunch of group of guys and just happened to be in the right circle at the right time. I joke with Ethan that he looked like a bond trader. He looked much more Venice <laughs> than uh, Denver cannabis. Uh, well, I'm actually born and raised here in, in Colorado. I know the, uh, the last time I, I uh, consumed cannabis was here in the church just a few minutes ago at 420. So that was the last time, and the first time that I uh, consumed cannabis uh, was also in high school. And I uh, had the unfortunate tragedy of uh, my, my father passing away in, in, in high school, and I 
turned to many different avenues and ended up using cannabis as my self-medication remedy uh, in comparison with a lot of other dangerous uh, possibilities out there. Well, one of the things that I, w I wanted to, to tell you about after, after the fact is, is uh, you had asked Steve a question about sort of where cannabis is going, whether it's medical or recreational. You know, for, for us, really medical was the, the stepping stone and, and we truly believe of the, the medical benefits. Um, in fact, I was just over in, in Israel at a, a cannabis technology convention over there and meeting with lots of different uh, high-powered pharmaceutical entities that are really looking at the medicinal benefits of cannabis. You know, a lot of, of modern pharmacopoeia, a lot of people say upwards of more than 80% of modern pharmaceutical drugs are derived from plants or they've been synthesized and, and copied, whatever uh, uh, molecules were, were in there. Um, one of the things that we're, we're looking at are different indications that we have experienced over the last seven, eight years being in this business of why and how cannabis takes care of certain indications, certain ailments from insomnia, pain, neuropathy, mood disorders, anxiety, depression, epilepsy, all kinds of neurodegenerative neuro diseases um, well, Frank, it, I mean, why have we always been taught that it's just kind of a glaucoma thing? It'll relieve pressure from glaucoma. And literally everything else I've been told by straight up doctors, and you know, the, not the homeopathic kinds, the, the, not the doctors of osteopathy, I don't know, but like, that's, that's, that's really for um, end of life people. They, they remember AIDS patients in the early 80s and appetites and whatnot. It's really uh, kind of funky science behind it. You don't seem to be a believer of that? Well, of course, you know, but I, I believe that back in the early time when prohibition was really taking stronghold, no one would want to associate it to any kind of pain relief. They always associated it being negative. So, you know, you would, you would never have the approval of anybody wanting to use it. It's interesting you talk about this. You can go up on, you know, it's, it's Throwback Thursday on Twitter. Um, you go back on the retronaut or historical pictures, there are all these ads from the 1970s for quaaludes from Roar Pharmaceuticals. And it's just like, you know, quaaludes is a stress reliever. Get a good night's sleep with it. And it was given such a legitimacy. And now you talk about quaaludes. It's, 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 it's like expressly forbidden. You know, that's up there with roofies. You don't, you, don't, you don't talk about that stuff loosely. But it was looked at as a lifestyle or... or you know, housewife stress relief drug back then, and I'm thinking at the same time, marijuana was being stigmatized like you would imagine. And if you go even back further, where prohibition really stemmed from, you know, in the early 1900s, you know, the, the fact that they're looking at, at marijuana as something to prohibit, to have uh, really something to pinpoint to certain demographics, you know, we're, we're, we look at... Uh, uh, how it went into prohibition and how it's coming out of prohibition and the, the education that really is is coming to light here on what the different cannabinoids, what the different terpenes, flavonoids are actually doing in our body and how they're reacting. There's a big, big fear, you know, that, that cannabis could, could take over well over 30% of modern pharmacopoeia. And so there's a... There's you really believe that? Thir over 30% of... It it's, hasn't even begun to be unlocked. So right now we talk about a lot of THC. We talk a lot about a, a, a CBD is, is sort of one of the buzzwords right now. Certain, certainly cannabidiol does amazing things for anxiety, epilepsy, neurogenerative degenerative diseases. But you know, there's 144 cannabinoids in this plant. 
we in Colorado have the ability to test for 10, 15, maybe 20 different cannabinoids. We just are seeing the, the surface of, of what this Pandora's box is actually going to open up when we look at the medical benefits of, of cannabis. So there's, there's 144 cannabinoids. There's well over another 300 different active pharmaceutical ingredients in this one plant. And so when we, we, we look at how, how pharmaceuticals are, are, are manufactured, we now are looking at the genetic code of cannabis and seeing what traits we can actually get to express what type of, of uh, medicines that can actually do amazing things for all these different things. I mean, when you, when you look at the television, watch the FDA-approved commercials where you could possibly bleed from every orifice and fatality is one of the side effects. It's sort of mind-blowing that, that the pressure on cannabis and, and, and keeping it out of the mainstream when we see television commercials daily on, on, on different, uh, different drugs that, that very, very much so are, are dangerous compared to, uh, compared to cannabis. Once we can get it more in the mainstream, it's going to continue to, to revolutionize uh, a lot of different things in our society. And finally, I'd like to commend Mr. Ethan Borg, COO of Colorado Cannabis Company, on his attire. It's great camouflage because you'd think he was president of the college Republicans, but he's a <laughs> marijuana entrepreneur, and he joined us on stage with Frank Quatrone of Pure, the marijuana dispensary, and the CEO of Colorado Cannabis Company. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank Our you pleasure. For us. Full Thank disclosure, you. stay with us. Full disclosure, we are back at the International Church of Cannabis right now with Kyle Alcott, its production manager at Colorado Cannabis Company. And, and you know, we're all doctors and lawyers and rabbis and whatnot in here. We, we just give ourselves the titles. I think Steve Burke, he is sometimes spiritual leader in Grand Puba. At other times, he's rabbi. Uh, you're just going by production manager. Uh, lab production manager, correct, yes. But do you have quasi-scientific credentials? Um, I did get a degree in chemical and biochemical engineering from the Colorado School of Mines. So when I see you guys at the Colorado Cannabis Company, I took some photos of it. It almost looks like Breaking Bad. I called it Breaking Bong. You had these flasks, these beakers going on. There's titration. There are drops. Um, I tried for the first time in my life a puff of something, your, your, C, your COO told me to try something that was low in THC and high in CBDs. I was like, come on, you guys. And, you know, you fly into Denver, you think everybody's just a bunch of stoners, and these are quasi-pharmaceutical prescriptions and everything. Who are you kidding, dispensary? Who are you kidding, Dr. Sanjay Gupta? But you are impressed that this has real therapeutic benefits. Oh, of course, yeah, we see it every day. Um, so yeah, the higher CBD, CO2 oils tend to be more popular on the medical side of our dispensary um, for people that are trying to treat uh, specific ailments. So we make different ratios of uh, CBD to THC oils, um, 20 to 1, 10 to 1, 5 to 1, 1 to 1, just so that um, everybody's kind of different and we still don't necessarily understand why certain ratios work better for certain ailments. So we offer the different uh, ratios so that no matter what works best for someone, we have that available to them. And then also people prefer to uh, feel a particular way when they're using cannabis products as well. I spoke to a doctor earlier who I respect who's telling me that really it does have a kind of a binary of effect that's irrefutable that both in pain management and uh, inducing appetite that for her it's absolutely the case that um, some derivative of marijuana works. Do you, do you believe the other things like you know, helping muscle aches or rubbing it into your head? I can tell you that my producer had a cat, has a cat with a massive abscess and she just wants the cat to take a chill pill so she gave him you know, tincture of, of uh, marijuana oil or something like that, and she swears that it worked. Sure, yeah, I definitely think that it works in terms of topicals, edibles, um, smokables. Um, everything works a little bit differently within the body. You have different receptors all over the place. Um, 
different ratios of uh, cannabinoids. Uh, terpenes also play an effect of how the cannabinoids are going to um, affect your body. So we don't. We need more research to be done into the science behind it because we really don't understand a lot of why certain um, ratios or terpenes actually really work. But we do know qualitatively that you know you're feeling this, you take this, and you feel better afterwards. So there's always the possibility of the placebo effect, but it seems to be a much higher success rate than whatever the 30% placebo type rate is. And we do see, I mean, in closing, we were talking to your CEO and COOs that there is a, clearly an opioid epidemic in the country, and also the number of, of uh, antipsychotic medicines and, and antidepressants, the number of prescriptions have just exploded, that and the opioid crisis over the past five, 10 years. If you look at the chart, it's, there's no subtlety to it at all. It seems to be, I mean, do you wonder, are, are more people in pain or are more people nervous or anxious and looking for a wonder drug? And the, the big question, I think, when I talk to people here in the industry is, can that be derived from marijuana? Is that ultimately terrifying the pharmaceutical industry that you have within mom and pop's access something that theoretically could be grown in their backyard? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that uh, marijuana is a good substitute for opioids in many cases. Um, I haven't had severe pain, but for me, whenever I've had any type of pain in my body, if I do something with a little bit higher CBD, um, it works for myself. Um, I definitely have lots of like uh, friends and acquaintances that have similar type issues that one of my good friends from high school uh, has had about six back surgeries. He played uh, college football, um, issues with discs all up and down his back, um, and he was tired of taking opioids, and so he found out I was working at the Colorado Campus Company and uh, came to me for what I would recommend for him uh, so that he could actually try to get off of opioids just because he was tired of having to take them all the time. And I was a little bit um, skeptical that for his level of pain that it would be uh, effective, but uh, just our regular Wonderland pills, which is like a two-to-one CBD to THC ratio, um, seems to be working for him. He said that uh, he was able to get off opioids, uh, you know, after the surgery. So I think that it, it could possibly, for many people, reduce the amount of opioid prescriptions necessary. And pro tip for everybody in closing is that I find that better than Advil, better than Excedrin, better than marijuana for me when I have uh, pain, ennui, anxiety, whatever you want to call it. Uh, don't knock Pizza Hut and Netflix. Um, I think the Pizza Hut Supreme, ooh, tough crowd, tough crowd. All I've been trying to do for three days was to dare Pizza Hut to deliver me a Supreme on stage. And no one in this audience was bold enough to make that happen, but I digress. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank Colorado you. Cannabis Company, full disclosure, stay with us. I'm Robin Farzad, and we are at the International Church of Cannabis. Can I get a hoot? Can I get a hanala? Like I say, you guys are such a low-energy crowd. I'm just so grateful. <laughs> it's the indica. Uh, joining me here on stage is someone who, all sarcasm, uh, all stonage aside, I have an enormous amount of respect and enthusiasm for, Billy Corbin, co-founder of Raconteur, the award-winning documentary shop, famous for Cocaine Cowboys, which is now 11 years old? Yeah. Cocaine no. Cowboys 2, uh, Cocaine Cowboys 3 is in the pipeline, you had Square Grouper, which you're going to screen here, uh, Cocaine Cowboys 6, Citizens on Patrol. Is in the works. That's a, good, that's a good Miami reference. No, but what's amazing is I profiled Billy for Business Week back in 2008, and he and Alfred Spellman, his filmmaking partner, I mean, these guys were about hustle. Uh, they didn't even have enough people on staff, so they gave credit to Alfred's late dog. 
It was all about being young, being gonzo, being viral, and now, lo and behold, they are indispensable to the big studios. ESPN comes to them for the 30 for 30 docs, for the U. I mean, we see no short, like, was it VH1, the, the, the tanning of America? Yeah. VH1, which is Viacom. I mean, it's, it's really an unbelievable uh, turning of the tables, Charlie Murphy. Tell us about that. No, I mean, you know, we were ready to sell out. It was just we were looking for the right price. That was all. But uh, no, not really. But we, I mean, we started out, my producing partners and I, uh, we were uh, in middle school and uh, we just, you know, hustled, literally hustled and uh, got Cocaine Cowboys made. Actually, our first documentary before Cocaine Cowboys was called Raw Deal, A Question of Consent. It was about the alleged rape of a, an exotic dancer at the Delta Chi Fraternity House at the University of Florida in Gainesville, uh, an event that was all captured on videotape. And it is exceptionally difficult to watch. I mean, yeah. at this point, it's, it's, a, it's like a modern taking of Rashomon. You hear stories from you know, 360 degrees and you don't know who's lying to you, you don't know who's embellishing, you don't know who the good and the bad people are. And uh, it's not something that you kind of just go out of your way and watch, but you realize you guys really had chops at a very young age to be honored at Tribeca, and then to, to take the U-turn and say, you know what? Sundance. Gonna, I'm sorry, sorry Sundance. Yeah. And that we're not gonna- High, Higher altitude. Higher altitude, yeah. Sundance. You were, were you on the cover of the New York Post? Yeah. And so everybody, everybody was surprised when you kind of hightailed it Is that something to, to be my, proud of, being on the cover of the New York Post? I guess it is. I mean, you know, you guys are young <laughs> cocaine cow kids. I mean, I did far less when I was 21. I mean, you are, you know, you're not even 26 Cocaine cow now, kids? You're very precocious. Do, Listen, I say we're that. We're going to do an animated game. series called Cocaine, Cocaine Cow Kids. Well, the animation you've I, done as I well. I buy too. those vinyl figures. I would buy the Cocaine Cow and Kids. Let me, I should add, by way of full disclosure, a couple things. Billy was the first ever guest on my show. May 1st, 2014, I reached out because he is a great case study in disrupting big media. And, he, and now I'm the last guest on his show, because clearly it's going to get so canceled after this. It'll probably get canceled after this. All sponsors will go away. But you should also know that I have such respect for him that he wrote the introduction to my upcoming book, um, Hotel Scarface, is on a history of how cocaine came to Miami. And uh, one place where we really crossed paths, especially with your documentary, Square Grouper, was in how marijuana came to Miami. Reefer Madness in Florida. Hmm. Let's take it back to... Um, Let's say the Kennedy assassination. We're going to go rewind back to the early 60s and the Bay of Pigs crisis. The Cubans. Yeah. The Cubans who came to Miami, little fact, uh, people don't realize that Miami in the early 60s was the biggest CIA station in the world. Well, outside of, of headquarters in Langley, the largest substation of, of any CIA uh, area was in, and uh, it was part of Miami-Dade known as uh, University of Miami South Campus. And uh, that's where they operated to essentially overthrow Castro. They were training uh, Cubans to, um, to go back to Cuba and, uh, and take care of business. And the CIA was one of the largest employers in Dade County at that time, uh, outside maybe of the, school, of the school board. And it's unbelievable to believe, but that, so you have Kennedy taking office right in 1960. Uh, Fidel Castro is in power. We still don't quite know if Fidel Castro is a really bad guy. Can we do business with him? But the CIA was experienced, if nothing else, at overthrowing regimes it didn't like. And there was going to be a rematch. Fidel Castro may have taken Havana, but we here were training all of these Cuban exiles in South Florida to know the coastline, to raid Cuba, to um, not just boycott it, but to, to assassinate people. And it culminated in the... They were trained to be boat captains. They were trained to be... Uh, 
you know, plane pilots. They were trained to, uh, you know, uh, make, uh, you know, make ground late at night and, and be able to infiltrate a border. And, and so it was all the, the skill set you would need as either a, a spy, an invading army, or a drug smuggler. And uh, it turned out as soon as uh, the CIA started shutting shit down in Miami. I can't say that. I'm you can say it, because there was, a, there was an invasion, the Bay of Pigs No, I said, invasion. can I say shit on NPR? Yeah, you can. National, I'll, I'll, national I'll pop radio. To, I'll change it to Shizrad. I'll auto-tune it or something. It? My gosh, I am putting people to sleep in I'm the sorry, road. I'm secondhand stoned right now. Well, I've never I'm, been hotboxed in a church before. This is crazy. Well, okay, let's just quickly, I just want to give the, the history before we get into to Reefer Madness in the 70s. The Bay of Pigs invasion, which was supervised nominally by the Kennedy administration in 1961, that was a disaster. You had more than a thousand Cuban exiles captured. Fidel Castro suddenly looked heroic to leftists around the world. All these Cubans who were either arrested or um, redeemed for money or sent back to, to Miami throughout the 1960s are pissed off and they're raring for a rematch that they never got because the Vietnam War happened, Kennedy's killed, LBJ takes over. And so you have all these people that are trained to know a coastline, to know every nook and cranny of Florida and the Caribbean, evasion techniques, you know, C4 explosives. Then they suddenly realize what? Well, the first thing they did was become fishermen. And they had boats and they went out and, and they mostly fished for, uh, for spiny lobster. And then an unfortunate event occurred in the 70s when the Bahamas outlawed foreign fishermen from fishing for the spiny lobster, which meant that now they not only didn't have their CIA paycheck, they couldn't fish in the waters off the Bahamas anymore, but they had these boats, they had this, this skill set, and they decided to become marijuana smugglers. And uh, a lot of the smugglers in Miami at that time period in the 1970s were, were Cuban. And, and then a lot of rednecks. A lot, a lot of, of rednecks, too. Yeah. They were called marimberos. And there was something glorious about it, because you were a smuggler, you were... Uh, you were a swashbuckler, you knew about evasion, you knew how to beat the government at its own game. Um, and well, there was people... something romantic about it at the time. You know, it was very sort of laid back and had a real Jimmy Buffett vibe. And you know, it's, it's really the, the precursor to the Colombians and the cocaine cowboys era in Miami. It was pretty mellow, it was pretty cool. You know, nobody really, there wasn't a lot of violence surrounding sure. uh, marijuana. Now, in terms of the food chain though, obviously, well, I should say also that marijuana, though, was a, was a cash business, whereas cocaine, because it was so valuable, was a consignment business. So everything was kind of straightforward with, with, with pot. You know, right. you get it, you pay for it, and that was that. But Co you still look at the value proposition of it. Uh, you could be catching lobsters or fish and dealing with fish guts and bycatch and chum and everything and smelling awful and not doing that great. The value proposition is if one of these Cuban exile, Bay of Pigs refugees, you know, people who knew the pot trade, they knew they could load motherships a couple of miles offshore and hire people with fishing boats or shrimping boats to move the marijuana. That was better than fish guts, but it was still bulky and smelly. So you take the economics of a square grouper, which was the nickname for marijuana, and you compare it to cocaine, which started barnstorming Miami in the late 70s. Tell us about that. Well, square grouper wasn't a, 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 a slang term for mar marijuana. It was a slang term for marijuana that was found floating in the ocean off the coast because there was so much pot coming into South Florida at the time that if you went out fishing or you were just chilling at the beach, you'd just see a bale of pot come by or you'd catch a bale of pot or just wash ashore. It happened so often that they came up, they called it seaweed, they called it square grouper uh, because it would, it would just happen on the regular because either boats would sink uh, with pot on it or they'd get 
uh, chased by the Coast Guard or Marine Patrol, and they would dump it overboard, and then you just have all this pot just, just coasting and uh, washing ashore. But um, pot was going for, in Colombia or Jamaica, it was probably going for about, uh, you could get it for probably about 40 to $80 a pound, and then it would sell in Miami for about $300 a pound. And if you were doing transportation, you could probably get about $30 a pound to bring in just a, a, a massive quantity of, like if you brought in 5,000 pounds, as a transporter, you'd get paid about $150,000. But 5,000 pounds was a lot to transport uh, on a boat. Um, then when cocaine started, well, first thing that happened is they started cracking down on pot smugglers and really just slamming them with, with uh, you'll see some of the, the stories in Square Grouper, the Ethiopian Zion Coptic Church, they were getting uh, 10, 15, 20 years uh, just for pot hauling. Although to be fair, the smallest load the Coptics ever got caught with was 19 tons. That was the smallest load. Because they were doing the freighters uh, out of the Marcus Garvey shipping line out of Jamaica, and they were like the mother boat. They were also a pot smoking church. Uh, who believed that uh, marijuana was a sacrament of God, as it says in Genesis about God giving us the, the herb. They always said that that meant that God meant that we were supposed to smoke marijuana morning, noon, and night out of these giant chalice pipes, which you'll see in the documentary, um, and chant all day long. And um, those guys were moving, obviously, <laughs> massive quantities. But... Um, you have guys like the Black Tuna Gang, another story from Square Grouper, the Godfathers of Ganja, which uh, one of the, the defendants in that case was one of the longest serving nonviolent marijuana prisoners in American history. He was sentenced to 30 years, served 27, for nothing but, but pot hauling. That's what blows my mind. I've, I've interviewed him, and he was on that first show too. His name is Bobby Black Tuna. The book is The Black Tuna Diaries. What's, what's mind-boggling to me is he said we were just, you know, he's a couple, he and his smuggling partner are Jewish kids. They work the Atlantic City boardwalk. They had a, an ice cream selling syndicate in yeah, Philadelphia. You, they were University of Miami alum. They were University of Miami alum, and they thought, they said, honestly, we thought that Jimmy Carter was going to legalize marijuana. Now, we're 40 years removed from this by this point, okay? So get it while it's good, you know, you know just, just kind of squeeze the market. They didn't have to be violent. But it blows my mind that someone like that had spent 32 years in prison, a nonviolent offender, when we know many Colombian assassins and people with, with literally with blood on their hands uh, got out for informing, you know, after six, seven, eight, nine years. Uh, it blows my mind that a, a man, and, and you'll see him, it's so harmless, uh, he moved tons and tons of pot and he just wasn't smart enough to not get informed on, spent that much life of his life in jail. Yeah, you'd think that this whole war on drugs thing is a miserable failure, wouldn't you? Well, I mean, it's one case. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, look, at the, I look at the Justice Department's release when they crack down on the black tunas. And, you know, to this day, you talk to people in Miami about the black tunas, they're like, yeah, man, I heard some stuff about them in prison. They were hardcore. But it, yeah. it, it's just two peddlers, uh, really, who tried to get the last yeah, well, of they, a cash Well, they spun it to make it seem like they were more dangerous than they actually were. They were just pothaulers. Right. You know, and, and so, they I mean, hung out at the, their, their home base was at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach at the presidential suite, and they had a house on Pine Tree Drive. They're just a bunch of Miami Beach guys, really. And it's a great story in this. I was really, um, almost made me cry when I saw that the kingpin, you took him back to his Miami Beach mansion. Spoiler alert. Sorry about that. That's the end of the episode. That's the, that's the whole end. This guy lived in the lap of luxury back. It's okay, the they're not going to remember it by the time they see infamous, the movie. infamous parties. And he's now, you know, when I met him, when he got out of the halfway house, he was on social security. The government still bothers him, still hits him up he's for urine tests. He's on yeah, probation. Yeah, like if he, needs, if he wants to leave the state, he's got to get permission. This is a 80-year-old man who right. served almost 30 years 
in federal prison for pot has to get permission to just travel and uh, and with his wife. Well, it's incredible. Well, in closing, Billy, and I just you know in a we didn't mention way, co- the transition to cocaine. We yes, had to mention, yeah. I do want to I do want to get at that because as the '70s hit the '80s and and and, and the uh, the apex of violence in Miami, 1980, 1981, malls getting shot up. You had the Colombians involved. You had. Uh, uh, people actually were going there and were in no mood for reefer madness and gentlemanly transactions and Jimmy Buffett. It was, um, you know, uh, it was literally deadly. Miami became the murder capital of America. And what we found in doing it was that even though the government continued into cracking down on marijuana in the 1980s, it did look the other way when cocaine was traded for arms. I think they, they kind of the Colombians just snuck in. I mean, they created this incredible demand among celebrities, you know, movie stars, uh, music, you know, musicians, uh, athletes, and the next thing you know, cocaine became a major trend, totally under the radar, while the, the DEA was distracted with heroin and, and marijuana. And the next thing you know, you had this huge market. You had a product that you could pay between five and $10,000 a kilo, which is 2.2 pounds, which incidentally is the only the only metric conversion I can do is, is kilos into pounds. We call that Miami math. Um, but you could buy a kilo, 2.2 pounds, for between five and $10,000 on the ground in Colombia. And as soon as you got it to Miami, it was worth 50,000. And compare that to a pound of by, marijuana. By the way, the street about. value, once it was all baggied up and cut, and especially you know, down the system, you're talking notionally a $600,000 haul. Assuming that, that you know, you could, and if you're working transportation, we talked about getting $30 a pound on pod. If you're working transportation, you're getting 3500 a kilo. So if you watch Cocaine Cowboys, Mickey Monday, the pilot talks about doing a 400 kilo haul on a plane out of Columbia and getting $1.4 million. Now compare that to 5,000 pounds of marijuana where they were getting paid $30 a pound, that's $150,000. Not to mention that people caught with marijuana were getting destroyed by the federal government and getting prison sentences of 10 to 30 years. People in Miami, when they were caught with, with cocaine, they would literally, they'd go to, to court, uh, they'd, go, they'd get like a $5,000 bond, which they would pay cash, and then they would just disappear. You'd never, you'd never see them again. And so it was like a revolving door at the courthouse with cocaine. So everybody sort of did the, the risk risk-reward analysis, and it, everybody very quickly moved from pot to cocaine. And it was a lot lower risk and a lot easier to start growing marijuana, obviously, here than having to, to smuggle it. And ma- marijuana became one of the largest cash crops in Florida, despite the fact that it's illegal there. Give us predictions, finally, on where marijuana regulation is headed. You guys are intimately familiar with the scene in Miami Beach. You're here in Denver, kind of the, the Taj Mahal of, of marijuana consumption, as it were. Uh, where is this headed, especially with the Trump Sessions administration? Well, it's truly remarkable uh, what a successful experiment in democracy Colorado has been, um, particularly in the face of the fact that America is failing as an experiment in democracy on a national level. And here we are in, in, in sort of the, the most, I think, incredible success story um, that we've seen in you know, the people uh, do by referendum, which seems to be the only way to get anything real uh, done is at, is at a local level or, or by referendum because the politicians don't have the, the stomach either at a state level in most states like Florida or federally certainly uh, to do anything ab- about it. But when you think about that here we are uh, and everybody's having a great time and everybody's chill and 
we would all be arrested in, if we were in Miami right now for what we're doing right now is, is extraordinarily depressing, I think. And um, Miami, we started at a local level by decriminalizing uh, in Miami Beach. When Square Grouper came out, we started a petition drive to get that on the ballot to decriminalize small you know, personal possession uh, amounts of marijuana, you'd get a citation rather than get arrested for that. And of course, the police would confiscate the pot, and I'm sure they were throwing that out or booking it into evidence, I'm sure. Um, but we, that's how we started. We started like in one little municipality in Miami-Dade, and now we've got the, that, that citation system countywide. And of course, Amendment 2, uh, last November in Florida, passed by 72%. Uh, which legalized medical marijuana, which the state legislature is currently making a hash of. Uh, no, no pun intended. Uh, right now, they're trying to literally rewrite the amendment that we all voted on. And 72% of nobody agrees on anything, let alone Floridians or Americans. And, uh, and, and you know, if you want to screw anything up, just hand it over to the politicians. That's what's happening now. So unfortunately, they've already built a cartel of only seven companies that can grow and, and distribute medical marijuana in the state of Florida, which is odd because when you consider the Republicans are such free market, <laughs> small government uh, uh, a party, and yet this seems to fl totally fly in the face of their, their ideology, which is let's spend more money on prisons, let's, spend, let's create uh, this monopoly here in the state of Florida. It just, it's, it's not going well, I could say, in the state of Florida, unfortunately. And, and I don't, I, we just, I think the people just have to, to rise up to get it right. You know, one thing I did forget, and I promise we will get to the movie right after this, is Florida is also the pill mill capital of the world. Right? You talk about the opioid crisis. You can open pain management centers in any strip plaza in Boca Raton, in North Miami Beach, in Hollandale. Like, why are there such a number of doctors there that are kind of like uh, coin-operated machines for pain relievers? To their credit, they clamped down on it, but it took a really long time to catch up. Because Florida, I mean, we don't have any indigenous industry. We don't produce anything there but oranges and handguns. We do great documentaries. Thank oh. you. That's very nice of you. But the thing is, is that we don't, there's no jobs in Florida, so we subsist from hustle to hustle. So when someone creates a hustle like a pill mill, there's no incentive for the state to shut it down as long is generating revenue. But what happened is in Broward County alone, you had more pill mills than you had Burger King and McDonald's locations. So you could walk up and just get, you'd walk up to one window to see the doctor and you'd hand the doctor your, uh, your x-rays and he would kind of look at it upside down, hold it up to the lamp and go, oh yeah, you need oxy and write you a prescription and then say, go to the next window. You go to the next window, you'd ring the bell, the same doctor would like open that window and be like, what can I do for you? He'd be like, I got this oxy. Prescription to tie, to tie it all yeah. together, yeah. Uh, well, a, at, a lot at, of cocaine at, kingpins who've gotten out of prison, they say they far prefer Medicaid fraud or the pill mill racket to yeah. what well, they were doing. But you had, at the peak of the pill mill epidemic in Florida, seven people a day were dying. I mean, that's men, women, and children. I mean, that was far worse than, than the peak of, of the cocaine cowboy era in, in Miami, where maybe two people a week would die of overdoses. Um, and, I mean, seven people a day is a pretty extraordinary problem, and, and, and we were really ground zero. We're ground zero for everything in, in, in Florida, to be perfectly real. I always say, like, if you... Um, Florida man's president now. Yeah, Florida, it's exactly right. Florida man, yeah. Billy Corbin, co-founder of Raconteur. You're in for a treat tonight. Square Group, it was an impressively done documentary. See his entire body of work. Full disclosure, stay with us.
Joining me on stage is Dave Ross, president of MMJ America. He's been in business since 2009. He received one of the first licenses in Boulder, Colorado, among the first in Denver. Eight locations in Colorado, over 100,000 square feet of grow. Uh, you are opening Vegas store this week, sir. Is that right? That's correct. And I understand Puerto Rico, Michigan, and Massachusetts are in the offing? Yes, very close, uh, especially Mass and Puerto Rico. Uh, we have letter of intents on all of them. Uh, very excited. You know, this whole uh, movement is moving across the country. We're glad to be a part of it. Our business model is that. So tell me about how it went from being recreational to commercial in your case. I mean, Denver and Colorado are outliers, but you're taking a risk here and looking at Massachusetts and what, Puerto Rico and Pennsylvania? Yes, well, they're all, you know, adapting. They're seeing the, the, the work that it's doing for people and the help that it does. Uh, the taxes aren't bad. You know, they're seeing what, what does, uh, what work's done with the taxes. For instance, here, as you know, a lot of the money's gone elsewhere to school systems, uh, music programs, things like that. And they're seeing that around the country. Uh, also the relief of the, of the cannabis. Uh, it starts medical. It started medical here, start med started medical in, in Nevada. And then as it rolls out, the, the state kind of sees the advantages and that's how rec is born, recreational. That's what happened in Massachusetts, Nevada, uh, a few other places, Arizona, it was turned down. Uh, Puerto Rico, it's just medical. So that's how they're going to roll it out across the country. Now, Dave, in addition to getting no satisfaction from this super supreme pizza that has never arrived, I swear it is the last time I mentioned that. Hint, 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 hint. Uh, no guest over the past three days has given me satisfaction to the extent I want to get a spot price for where marijuana is trading. Uh, Colorado versus the rest of the country. We know that this is fungible. We know that people smoke it in all 50 states and the territories, uh, but the price surely must have cratered here wholesale-wise versus other states where you have kind of more puritanical jurisdiction. Absolutely. When we so first, tell me, yep. what can I buy it for here? Not that I'm going to smuggle it back on my United flight, but I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say speak into the microphone, but you are. Uh, Yes, the prices have fallen drastically here in Colorado, so the competition is very, very intense. To give you an idea, uh, it usually costs anywhere from $1,000 to $1,400 to produce a pound of cannabis. Some people might do it a little less, but on the large commercial scale, that's about it. You used to be able to sell that for $2,400, $2,800, $3,000 on the wholesale level all day long. Now you're lucky to get $1,200, $1,300. So it's cut in half. Where am I? Uh, Jeff Sessions is Oklahoma, right? Alabama, I believe. Alabama, I'm sorry, I always forget. How much would it fetch me in, say, Birmingham? You'd probably get between three and 4000 a pound. Is there a high price? Is there a place known for paying top dollar? I would imagine that South Beach is flooded with the stuff, New York. I mean, I remember in New York, and I didn't use it then, but doormen would significantly supplement their salaries by discreetly sure. accepting... Sure. I, I used the term dime bag yesterday and somebody laughed me off the stage. I guess that's not indexed for inflation. What is a dime bag called? What is the unit of delivery these days? Well, no, it's called a quarter ounce, you know, ounce, you know, uh, that type of stuff, half ounces. But you're right. Back in the day, it was a, it was a nickel bag, a dime bag, you know. I mean, and also, you know, pass the clutchy from the left-hand side. Yeah. That's another one. <laughs> I mean, look, a roach, a doobie, the doobie brothers. Um, one of the things, you know, and I, I, look at, I look at Billy Corbin's work. I'm a big admirer. I'm a big fan of your comedies, Billy Corbin. Uh, uh, you used to, you know, cocaine, the beauty of cocaine, something else I have not tried, is that you could cut it with uh, uh, baby 
laxative or other things. I'm not sure you can cut marijuana. I'm not sure you can cut corners. I mean, could no, you put cilantro in it or oregano? No, but you? there's pesticides that people may use, and that's the good thing about Colorado is they're constantly testing, and they will fine you if they find something wrong with it. Now that you say that, you can imagine over the last 30, 40 years what people have been ingesting, you know, that they've gotten either through California or Mexico or Colombia. They don't worry too much about what goes into it. So, you know, it's kind of nice now that people are making them be tested and this product has to be destroyed. Which is what I always worried about if I did want to take this stuff up in a great way. I mean, where's the quality assurance if you're consuming it, say, in Virginia or West Virginia? There's no USDA stamp on it. It's not FDA sanctioned. You kind of have to depend on your friends' right. wisdom. Um, you, you, you worry if you get a strain that is souped up with something, or even right now is, is the synthetic marijuana, and you read about the Aaron Hernandez mm -hmm. uh, tragedy and the suicide in prison, and it's thought that he had smoked this before taking his own life. We, we might not know where this is headed. But again, that's where the testing and the labeling is important, like anything else that you would find in a supermarket or anything that you would take that a doctor would give you. Uh, it legitimizes it now, you know, because again, back in the day, like you say, if somebody produces something at their house in a home grow and they have some mildew or something on it, they're just going to wipe it off and sell it to everybody and you're going to smoke it. And that's going to be it. So Dave, explain for me, what is the standard? What is like the gold standard? Ah, not the gold standard, but the, 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 the median most desired batch serving like the the tall Pike's Place roast it's, of it, your it, business. It, 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 kids now, it's like wine. You know, again, back in the day... You, What's the rosé of... Well, that's the thing. I mean, they take it, they look at it, they examine it. They're very intelligent. They know exactly what they're doing. You know, very schooled in it. So, uh, they really look for the THC count. You know, that's the important thing. I mean, how... How much do you want to be affected? You know, some of these products go up to 90% THC. Again, back in the day, these things that you're talking about, it was 12, 15% THC. The norm, normal cannabis now goes between 23 and 30, which is a nice THC count. But they do have products, shatter, dabbing, what have you, that get up around 80 to 90% THC. So you have to know what you're comfortable with. There's a lot of people that are beginners that want a nice mild feel to it, and we have these type of products. So you bifurcated in terms of THD, and what is the other metric, CBD? CBD. Tell me about CBD. CBD is what you're gonna use for pain relief. Uh, Billy was just at my store, and I was showing him some of the new products. Uh, we have patches, we have roll-ons, we have creams. None of these things uh, get you high. Uh, it's strictly just for comfort and relief. Uh, it doesn't necessarily cure you. It is just a relief of pain. And uh, again, this is how this whole thing's evolved instead of taking prescription pills. And when I first started in 2008, 2009, you know, people would come into my office. I mean, I didn't know. I came here from Florida. My brother said to me, I I'll save money. I'll get you out of jail. You know, I mean, go ahead, go do this. I had a little hotel on the beach, I sold it, and I came out here to be in the cannabis business. And uh, people would come in, and they'd literally fall asleep in the chair talking to me, you know, about, geez, this is something I've never tried before, and their prescription drug would really knock them out. So you had your fling with the law. It's funny, one night we had a little grow, and we were in Broomfield, uh, they allowed it at that time, and uh, the gentleman that was teaching me how to grow wanted it done through, through the night, not sure why. And uh, we had a knock at the door, two in the morning. Two in the morning, he says, Dave, there's cops up front, they want to talk to you. Great, I've been here a week. 
I walk, I open up the door. He says, are you Dave Ross? We just ran your plates on your truck. You know, you're wanted in Florida for A, B, and C. And then all of a sudden, the officer in the car yelled, no, wrong Dave Ross, it's not him, he's okay. And I had already explained to the officer, geez, I moved here, and of course I know what's behind me now. You know, we got two, 300 plants. And he says, well, if you're gonna stay here, you know, make sure you get your car registered and make sure you take care of this and that. And I'm looking at this guy, and all I can hear is my brother saying, I'll get you out of jail, you know? And he's looking, he's smelling everything. Everything's coming out the door. Never said a word, you know, good night. Shook hands, I shut the door, I called my brother, I said, I'm in business, this is legal. So you're hardcore? No, but that's, we just started and weren't sure where we were going. I mean, there, there were times when we didn't have a grow where we would purchase the product and we would literally be driving around town here. I'd be in my truck, I'd have 20 pounds of pot with me. A cop would stop me, I had a wrinkled piece of paper. I'd pull it and I'd go, look, MMJ America. He'd call into his thing, call in, go ahead, go ahead. And it was really, it was, it was wild in the streets. It really was from 2009, 2010. Nobody was licensed, and that's when 1,500 opened up. I mean, I went from being one of the only few to there were 1,500 within two months. Then they started coming out with intense rules. If you uh, have an arrest record, if you owe in taxes, child support. So unfortunately, all these people lost a lot of money. And that's why what they're doing in these other states is much better because they qualify you, they license you, and then you go on and spend a lot of money and take your chance. Arbitrageur, not a smuggler, not a doper. I'm flying back to Virginia tomorrow with a nice backpack and a nice garment bag. Suppose I take a handful of bricks back. What fail-safes are there there to kind of stop me from doing that? Am I going to get sniffed at the airport if well, I take it on the plane or... You know, how does it work? You, you, you run a big risk. You'll see at the airport, they do have the uh, officers with the dogs. Usually what happens when they find a small amount in your suitcase is they look at you and say, we assume that you forgot this and we're just gonna throw it out. If you don't want us to throw it out, we have to go in What if room. I had forgot that I digested an enormous amount and I have it in my small intestine? Again, I, I don't know how far they're gonna push it. If you have enough, they're gonna make a case. If Man, you you're don't supposed have enough, to be hardened and hard ass. I thought you'd say, let's take this offline. Let me let me give you a tip I, or two. I, I can't. <laughs> Dave Ross, president of MMJ America. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. You. Thank you. MMJ America has eight locations in Colorado, opening Vegas store this week. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are here on stage with Ray Fiore, uh, who was a person who helped in the digging at Ground Zero uh, after the atrocities of 9-11. He was a carpenter, and he is still feeling the after effects of his duty 16 years after that terrible uh, morning and the several months that followed. Uh, tell me what brings you to the International Church of Cannabis. Well, what brought me to, to Denver after a nine-state search of where to leave after New York, because I had gotten to a point in New York where I realized that that wasn't my New York anymore. It was dissipating, and the smog, and the, the prices of everything, and just, it just, everything is so expensive in New York. It's just, it pushes you out. And all my friends were moving everywhere, different places, so I wanted a better life for my little 13-year-old daughter, who I raised as a Mr. Mom. Well, I want to I understand your ailment. Um, uh, I, I, I just remember, because uh, I worked in Lower Manhattan, I was in Lower mm -hmm. Manhattan on September 11th. 
I was in a train on the 23 Express train and I got out yeah, at Wall Street. Trains to go to my house. And they pushed me back in the train and I saw it all transpire from Brooklyn Heights. Um, I, I always wonder if I had gotten out and if I had gotten to work, if I was not late that morning, um, my journalistic curiosity, I would have, this was before the era of the smartphone, I would have run over toward Cortland Street and the towers and wanted to catch what was happening. No one in their wildest dreams imagined that these two huge skyscrapers, the biggest in Manhattan, would collapse. And when they did, it was unprecedented in all that asbestos, computer equipment, mainframe stuff. Jet fuel, dead jet bodies. Fuel, dead bodies, I mean. The, pulverized the, the, steel, pulverized concrete. Um, and, and, and it was a search and recovery effort, and there were so many bold volunteers like yourself who went into it. Um, what, what, I don't even know how to say it. What did that taste like? Like, it's a concoction, but when you're, when you're fueled to do something, you don't think about stuff like that. Not one guy. There was guys that were 6'3", 275 pounds. The, the agents, the FBI agents with flak jackets. Huge guys, tears coming down their eyes. And you, never, nobody knows what to do at that point. And Christy Todd Whitman, she came a couple of days later and said the air was safe down there. We knew it wasn't, but we were As the head of the EPA that. in 2011. Uh, yeah, yeah. She, she knew nothing about what was going on down there. But the concoction in my lungs... I, don't, I, don't, I never spoke with a scratchy voice like this. And guys that were there many more days and weeks than me are dead already or dying of some kind of cancer. So 9-11's still killing people all these years later. But me being a positive person, I came to Colorado and discovered medical marijuana back in California and just went on vacation. So my quest has been to find a place where I can feel like, a, this is home. This is our second home. This is where, when a gay person says they come out of a closet and they ex are accepted in life, this is how marijuana people are accepted did now. You, did you use pot? Was it growing up in Brooklyn? 11 years old, bro. When 11 years old, I knew it was my medicine. 11 years old. And so old. What, is it, what has it meant to you in your respiratory era over the past 16 years? It opens years? up the capillaries and opens it up so that you can breathe even better, believe it or not. And it, it, it takes away the post-traumatic stress disorder portions because when something happens in the world, don't have to be my house, it could be in India, it could be a, an explosion, an earthquake, anytime there's a traumatic thing that happens, it, I relive 9-11. I relive the days of walking on a pile and trying to get down to World Trade Center by taking the train all the way to West 4th Street and walking backwards, if you know what I'm talking I about. I remember. Lafayette and Canal, I had a show of FBI agents, my driver's license, and my union car, it was a union carpenter. So I remember I walked that path all the time with the dust shattered, windows shattered, 20 blocks away, phone boots blown out from the impact. You have no clue. You had to have been there to really see the death and to see the desperation on grown men's faces that were tears coming down their eyes. They, so do you find that this calms you down? Is it an anti-anxiety medicine for you? <laughs> without, it, without marijuana on my mother's grave, because God is my witness, I would have been dead or in jail by now. Guarantee, guarantee. I'm a hyper person by nature. I'm a sensitive guy. If you say something wrong to me, I might get pissed and want to punch you in the face. Marijuana takes that away from me. Take, nah, don't worry about it, let it go. More blase, when I don't smoke, I'm like ready to snap. So how hard is it to get prescribed in a typical state, whether New York oh, or prescribed. California? I was prescribed in California, Michigan, and now here. But it's wherever you are. I mean, you have a, you have a legitimate case, at least pain relief or opening mm -hmm. up your capillaries. If you're a glaucoma patient, you can get a prescription, theoretically, from an ophthalmologist mm -hmm. or a hospice care facility. Can you legitimately get a prescription in most states? Yes. 
Yes, it was one I tell them about 9-11. They understand. They, they see it in me. They hear it in my voice because I speak truth. I speak from being there. You have to have been somewhere. It's like when your mom dies. Somebody can't say I, under, I identify with my mom dying unless your mom died. So you had to have been there, you know? Rock and Ray Fiore, a volunteer at Ground Zero who helped in the rescue and recovery effort and is uh, feeling the, the psychic and physical consequences 16 years after the fact. Thank you so much for joining us. Peace, my brother. Full disclosure, stay with us. Can I get an applause? Full disclosure, live from the International Church of Cannabis in Denver, Colorado, on the weekend of 420. Thank you so much. Special thanks to our sponsor, Vicente Setterberg, the law firm. Special thanks to the Church of Cannabis and Steve Burke. Uh, special thanks to the audience here and our wonderful producer from Denver, Meredith Turk. Catch us and like us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. Let me repeat the link, FullDRadio.com. If you'd like to subscribe, the episode will be up shortly. We are on Twitter at FullDRadio, Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. And uh, if you want to sponsor, just holler. Send me a DM. I like to slide into those DMs. We are Dimebag, the stickiest of the icky, high in THCs, high in CBDs, Cash me outside, how about that? I'm Robin Farzad, thank you for joining us. <laughs>